Join us and Neighborhood Cats for all you need to know about Trap New to Return, TNR, and Colony Management. You'll learn the basics and walk away with the tools you need to be successful in helping outdoor cats. Workshops are typically held the first Saturday of the month. Registrants will have the opportunity to earn a certificate. For more information and to register today, go to communitycatspodcast.com. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Winter Miller. Winter is a playwright who lives in Brooklyn, New York. She's a former journalist who has worked in the editorial department of the New York Times, the newsroom of Fox News, and at Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, and in anthologies edited by Eve Ensler, Jay Courtney Sullivan, and Courtney Martin, and Lizzie Skernick. Winter and her work have been profiled in The New Yorker, Bomb, New York Magazine, and on NPR's Brian Lehrer Show, and all of it with Allison Seward. A graduate of Smith College, she holds a master's degree from Columbia University. Not a Cat is her first picture book, and learn more about Winter at wintermiller.com. Winter, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's radio, so you can't see that I have a tiny kitty in my lap, but just know that this entire uh, situation is being supervised by a five-month-old kitty. Oh, that's so cute. And I do get the privilege of seeing the kitty and it's very, very cute. And so, so nice that you have, have guests with us today. We have extra guests. So with the kitty in your lap, how did you become passionate about cats? Um, just always was, was lucky enough to be uh, born into a family where my parents are divorced. But when I was at my mom's house, we always had a cat and um, they're the best. I can't imagine being without them. Very simple, straightforward. It says here in your bio, you went to Smith College. I'm a graduate of Vassar College. So we are- Hey, um, seven sisters. Seven, seven sisters. Yes. When you went to uh, college, what did you focus on there? I double majored in theater and women's studies. Um, I think my bio left out the fact that what I do is I'm a playwright. So I write plays and I work with playwrights on writing their plays. Um, This is my first children's book, and um, it actually came about just because I was really, really in love with my cat. He was my best friend, and I wanted to write a book celebrating him. So that's how that came about. I didn't didn't know I was going to write a children's book until I did. And why did you decide to focus on a children's book? I mean, what, I mean, a lot of people can write stories about their relationships with their cats or their pets or their animals. There's a lot of like bonding, I think a lot of bonding dog books out there and that kind of thing. Why did you decide to focus on children? That's a good question. Maybe because it has so few words um, and that seemed appealing. I mean, I may, you know, maybe at some point I will write an essay or something about Gato and about what that companionship was like. But I also, I I love children's books and I love, like, I love children's television. I love Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow and that sort of thing. So it just felt like, it felt like the right medium because I also wanted illustrations or pictures. The thing about Gato is that in the book, we did 
basically all of those things and more that you see in the book. And so I wanted people to know that this is a cat who went canoeing in the Adirondacks. This is a cat who went hiking. This is a cat who took airplanes. Um, this is a cat who pretended to drive a car, all of those things. So it seemed to go well with a, a children's book, really. I don't, I don't know. It just, I, I, I really can't explain it. It was just something that I wanted to do. And that seemed like the right medium. So it was, it was an adventure, you know, sort of the adventure and the romance of it maybe that helped with trying to put it into that medium. Yeah. I think also just children love cats. They love animals and it's a, it's a perfect audience. I mean, I think it, of course the book is for adults and for parents and all of that, but one of the things that I like to do with Gato is take him around Brooklyn and have him meet kids who didn't have cats and see, you know, their, their fear about touching a cat or would it bite them or, or all of that and just let them meet Gato. And, you know, he was like a little furry mayor. He brought people on the street together or, or at airports. Like he just was always making people happy. So I think that was the other part of it is because he brought me so much happiness and because I could see him bringing other people so much happiness, I wanted to just widen the scope of that. And it just felt like cats and children, children and cats, Right. Yeah. When my son was very young, I had a group of cats here and I had one cat who no one could touch. No one except for my son when he was very young. And um, and I think that there is this level of communication between cats and young children that maybe we don't see too easily because young children don't have a lot of the, the emotional barriers that we as adults sometimes carry, I think. And um, at least in the case of this particular cat, she was very trusting of him. And she, they knew how to connect with each other in a way that she could not connect with any other human beings. You know, people would say, oh, she's, she's a house feral cat, or, you know, you shouldn't have her as an indoor cat. She should be outside, you know, with all the other ferals and that kind of thing. But my son thinks very fondly of her. I mean, she's not with us anymore, but you know, he has these very special memories of her as when he was, was a child. So there's, there's this incredible relationship, I think, between, you know, children and, and animals. And as you said, you know, children's books are not just for children. You know, and also say my, my mother, when she had severe dementia, we used children's books with her all the time. She's a huge, passionate cat lover. And she would read the children's books about cats all the time. I mean, she would underline the words and she'd put stars next to things in the pictures. And, and it was very entertaining for her, you know, as she was entering her last season of life, I guess, as they would say. Um, so it served an incredibly good purpose there for her, too. So I'd say that certainly children's books are multiple audience books, for sure. Yeah, I've also been hearing that this is a great book for caretakers in general. So people who are taking care of elderly folks as well. And just part of the existence of the book is it also has a piece about grief because the book was already made, but Gato passed away last October at 13. And he'd been sick for um, three years with cardiomyopathy. And he'd been given maybe, you know, a month or so to live. And he outlived that by another three years, but it meant that he and I were together every day because I had to give him medicine in the morning and medicine at night. And that meant I travel a lot. So that meant he was always going with me. Um, but there's a, the publisher suggested that we have a, an in memoriam page for him at the back of the book. And we do. And to me, that's a real celebration of his life, but I think it also 
opens the door for people to be able to talk about their own grief, um, whether it's that they've lost a pet or someone in their family, that it just, it opens the door to say, you know, yeah, part of, part of loving is losing. Right, right. I know it sounds like the book was primarily written before he passed away, but do you think that helped you through the grieving process to know that, that you had this book already done? 100%. Because the other thing about Gatto is that he actually had a pretty large fan club. I would post about him on Facebook and stuff like that. And he also was out in the world. Like when I was out teaching classes, he would be with me. Or if I was in rehearsals, he would be with me. So he met a lot of people and a lot of people were really fond of him and were constantly asking how he was. And um, so if you're hearing tiny meows in the background, that's not me. Um, That's tiny kitty wanting to weigh in on uh, their predecessor, I guess. Um, But knowing that I was going to be able to continue to share Gato with other people made me really happy. It was, it was a way of sharing someone who'd been so important to me. So I feel really, I feel really lucky, you know, that, that the book exists because every time I see it, I get to celebrate my best friend. How did you adopt Gatto? (laughs) Um, I adopted Gatto at, there's a, there was a shelter in Union Square and I'd gone online and looked at kittens and cats and all of that. And I found that I just couldn't tell. Um, I, I needed to know the personality of the cat and just looking at these little boxes, it was like, you know, match or bumble or something. And it wasn't, it just wasn't right. So I went into this place that had the cats and they were all in cages. And the rule was that you couldn't hold one. You couldn't take it out and touch it until you had decided that that was the cat for you. So there were maybe 40 or 50 cats in cages and I was just there by myself and I just stood in front of each of the cages and read their profile and looked at the cat and watched, you know, what were they doing? Were they playing? Were they sleeping? And just tried to get a sense of who they were. And, uh, and I stopped in front of this one cage and it was this cat named Clayton who was gray and white. And I had had the, the cat I'd had previously, I had found on the beach in Provincetown. It was like a four week old under a dock. It had been abandoned and I had just, you know, raised it as, you know, a tiny person with fur or something. But so I, I was, when I was ready to get another cat, I wanted a cat that was a little smaller than um, my previous cat was named Peeve. And I wanted a cat that was a little smaller. And this cat Clayton was, was curled up in a ball, like a little cinnamon bun. And, and I looked at the age and they said that he was somewhere between six months and a year so that he was pretty much done growing. And I thought, yes, this is the right size cat for me, along with all of the other personality traits, just that he was mellow. And so I chose the cat, they opened the door and then they handed it, this cat to me and he unfurled. (laughs) He was the longest cat I'd ever seen. And I just thought, oh, I I got tricked. This isn't a little cinnamon bun. This is a giant, long, thin cat. But, you know, we'd already chosen each other. So, you know, it it was done. And I I looked at him and I was like, your name isn't Clayton, is it? And I realized it's not like he'd walked into a shelter and said to them, hey, guys, I want you to call me Clayton. And that there was no way that he had any affection for that name at all. And of course, there's a good debate about whether or not cats do know their names. 
but I realized that I didn't have to stick with Clayton. And so I chose uh, Gato because I also at that time had a nephew who was a newborn and who is half Dominican. And because I don't speak very much Spanish, I just thought this would be a little bonding way to call the cat Gato. So that was how I came to get the longest cat known to humans. Do you think that um, folks, and we've had a lot of different feline behaviorists on the show, as well as folks that are, you know, involved with like adventure cats and cat explorers and, and that kind of thing. And it sounds like you took Gatto pretty much anywhere, everywhere. So it sounds like you're sort of a believer of this, bring your cat around, like you'd bring your dog with you, bring your cat with you. Is that sort of the position that you take? Yeah, I don't see that there's any difference. You know, I think the only thing that sort of stands in the way is, are people comfortable with having a cat around? Something that I've often encountered is that people say, oh, I, you know, I, I love cats, but I have allergies or I hate cats. I have allergies. And there are definitely some people in the world who have serious cat allergies and I have met them and I honor their allergies. There also are thousands of people who just make up that they have allergies because they don't want to deal with a cat or what, whatever. But I had, I've had so many people who were like, I'm allergic to cats, except for your cat. I love being around <laughs> your cat. And I'm like, well, yeah, I get it. He's, you know, a short hair and I, you know, I brush him and stuff, but you're also not that allergic to cats. If you're sitting here and you're fine and you're holding my cat and, you know, rubbing your face in my belly. So part of it is just, you know, people have this assumption that cats are standoffish or that they're, uh, you know, cold or, you know, whatever. And, and that dogs are our man's best friend. And, you know, I, I obviously don't feel that way. My cat was my best friend and there was so much joy in bringing him places. And, you know, he also was helpful. Um, I was out in um, San Francisco working on a play and there were lizards humans dressed as lizards in the play, but Gato was in rehearsal. And so they were watching the way, like the way his haunches moved, the way he would sort of slink across the stage, um, the way he would approach you if you were holding a tuna sandwich, all of that stuff. But he, he was as person-like, as dog-like, as cat-like. He really just went across the boundaries of what people think a cat is. And to me, that was important. And that's why I wrote the book was every time people would meet him, they'd be like, oh God, he's so great. He's, he's just, he's so much like a dog. And my response was, no, he's a cat. Like, this is it. This is also what a cat is. The other thing I would encounter is that people would say, oh, you know, is, is it a boy? Is it a girl? And, you know, my response was just, it's a cat. It doesn't matter what their gender is. Like he'll answer to girl, boy, whatever. It's a cat. You know, don't get too hung up on on the gender. It's it's just a cat. And I felt that way just about the way he existed in the world is don't get too hung up on whether or not this is cat like and what is or is not. You know, I took him swimming to see what was that like? What does a cat look like when they swim? And, and I didn't know if he could swim. And, you know, the cat jumps in the, you know, you put him in the water and he moves his paws. And it is what everyone else refers to as a doggy paddle. So it could have been called a kitty paddle or a cat paddle, but it's just that more dogs do it, but he could swim. With the holidays right around the corner, 
curl up with a furry friend and a copy of the new book, How Snowball Stole Christmas by Kristen McKenna. The adorably funny brand new novel featuring one very opinionated, very beautiful matchmaking cat named Snowball. The story is as cute as the cover. It's the perfect stocking stuffer. Clever scallywag of a cute as a button cat residing in a small town, Victorian B&B, and matchmaking on the down low, bringing two hearts together, all wrapped up like a pretty Christmas bow on a creamy white cat named Snowball. There's no end to the way Snowball can drum up trouble to bring two people together who start out despising each other. This floof will stop at nothing to make the perfect holiday match for her resident humans, even if it means being a little more naughty than nice. Just in time for the holidays, How Snowball Stole Christmas from Kensington Books is available everywhere books are sold. It's a great read. Team Dubert is at it again, and now they have an amazing companion case management module that once again revolutionizes how you rescue animals. Dubert partnered with Dallas Pets Alive and the Spay-Neuter Network to build a powerful solution that allows you to manage cases of any kind. Whether owner surrender calls or emails, community cat tracking and reporting, Dubert is the only system that integrates two-way text messaging, automatic follow-ups, and even a rehoming solution that every organization can use. No more trying to manage 10 different technologies when everything is all in one place and tightly integrated. From fostering to transport, fundraising to e-commerce, supply and demand to case management, Dubert has everything you need to streamline your operations so you can focus on saving more animals. Check out the new companion case management module at www.dubert.com CCM and get signed up today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. So it's really interesting, you know, you're sort of talking about respecting him for just, you know, Gato for who who he was and and just the, the kind of personality that he has. And different cats have different personalities. And I'm sort of trying to feed around here to the fact that, you know, you're in Brooklyn. I think of New York as being a mecca for community cats. There's a lot of trap new to return outside in the various boroughs and that kind of thing. Have you had any involvement with regards to TNR or community cats, just even in your own neighborhood? I haven't. Um, There's that app next door and people are always posting about that they found a feral cat or that they, you know, that a cat needs rehoming or, or stuff like that. I admire the people who are out there you know, trapping and saving and rehoming. It doesn't fit into my life at this time, partially because, you know, I seem to be a one cat person. So it's not like I could bring one home. And um, the, the thing that had happened with Gato is that early on in his life, he'd been attacked by a few different cats. So he didn't start off terrified of cats, but he then was. And so uh, having him around other cats, I really had to keep distance. So it's not something that I've brought, you know, other, other new cats into my home. And I think I'm always sort of conflicted about how do you take care of a cat that is in the street? What's, what's the right thing to do and, and watching people put food out and just kind of, you know, monitoring. But if I see a cat in the street, I'm always looking to, you know, see, does it have a collar? Is, is it, 
you know, does it belong to someone and are they missing that cat, first of all, but then also just trying to make sure that it's not running out into the street. But I am not an active cat fetcher or rehomer, but I appreciate the patience of those who do it and the skill that it takes to to have a cat trust you. I, I do think that that is an amazing thing. If I've ever been in a circumstance where a non-domesticated animal has approached me or hung out with me, I do think that that is a very special feeling and probably like what your son felt to sort of be chosen by an animal feels really good. Just as, you know, to hold an infant and have it fall asleep in your arms, same thing, just to be, to be trusted is nice. Yeah. I always find it fascinating to try and understand how folks that maybe aren't in the day-to-day world of trap new to return, trapping cats, rescuing them, getting the kittens, just trying to understand, you know, what's the perception of community cats out there? You know, what is it that you see versus what is it that other people see that may have like their community cat spidey sense going out there and that kind of thing. And it's great to know that you're appreciative of the efforts of those that are out there, that you understand that trap new to return is happening out in the community. Obviously, you're more versed in the cat world than somebody who is maybe what would say not be a cat person. But I always try and understand sort of what we as a society are understanding about community cats in the area, because we can think, oh, everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows this, but not everybody. Everybody doesn't know this. They don't know, you know, that an ear tip, what does an ear tip mean when a little part of the ear is taken off and means that they're already spayed and neutered and that somebody else is, you know, looking out for them in, in most cases and that kind of thing. And, you know, what to do about a litter of kittens that are, you know, do you worry about what age that litter of kittens is? And do you go grab them? Do you not go grab them? What do you do if you hear the mewing kittens, you know, underneath the boxes or underneath a dumpster or something like that? You know, what's what's the interaction that you need to do? So I always find it really fascinating to talk with different folks to find out sort of where's our common line or understanding, our baseline understanding where when I first started in this and back in the 90s, you know, I was just like, oh, you call, you know, animal control and they'll just come, they'll trap them, they'll euthanize them. And it's now so great to hear people talking about, you know, trap new to return as being much more of a, of a common and more accepted and, and more suggested option out there for sure. Yeah. I think that the internet makes that a much greater possibility. And I think also the way that people are communicating after disasters and making sure that pets are rehomed is, you know, there's, there is greater care about making sure that, that pets are not left alone. Yeah. Can you uh, just uh, share a little bit about your playwright work? Just share a little bit about what, what that's all about. Uh, Sure. I like to write plays about the human condition. They sometimes are comedies. They sometimes are drama. Um, I'm usually interested in looking at a question and figuring out um, how could I approach that through theater. So the most recent play that I just opened, it actually just closed yesterday, Sunday. Um, Well, by the time this airs in October, it will have been closed for a long time. But my most recent play is called When Monica Met Hillary and is about um, an imaginary meeting between uh, Monica Lewinsky and Hillary Clinton. Because I just got to thinking like, what would these two people say to each other if they were in a room? And I found it really fascinating that they um, had not ever met Um, to my knowledge or anyone else's. And just thinking about what is the work that uh, women are often doing to clean up the messes made by men 
and how is that done and how, and it's, it's, it's for women. It's Monica's mother, Marsha and Hillary's uh, surrogate daughter, Huma Abedin. And everyone is facing that question of how do you, how do you move on? A previous play that I wrote was about um, genocide in Darfur, Sudan. And the reason for that was that it was 2004 and I was working as a news clerk at the New York Times with op-ed columnist Nicholas Kristof. And he was covering the genocide in Darfur. And I had access to all this information because not many people in the U.S. knew that there was a genocide then. And so I had all of this information and I won a contest to you know, to write a play. And so I did. Um, and I also traveled there with him just to be able to see what it was like on the ground and, and get a sense of that. The play that I'm working on next is, is about abortion and it's about the history of it. Um, but it's also about just the semantics that depending on how you feel about abortion, that one person will say um, that someone is carrying a fetus and the other person will say that that person is carrying a baby and that we so often get stuck in the semantics of whether it's a baby or a fetus. And what I'm concerned about is asking the question, how, how do we take care of the person who is alive, who is carrying, whether it's a baby or a fetus, how do you, how do you respect that person's wishes and how do you take care of what they need? Um, and, and that we have a country in which that right is so quickly eroding. Um, but I also wanted to look at um, abortion over time. And it has, of course, always existed. It just at one point got medicalized and that totally changed access to it. But it will always exist. So since it will always exist, I personally would like to see that it is safe and legal. Uh, so this play just explores, it explores abortion, but it also has talking fetuses in it. So it really allows for um the possibility of holding multiple opinions and exploring what it might be like to try on a different opinion from the one you've always had. It's really funny. I'm going to take this in a totally different direction than you probably are anticipating in this conversation, but you're talking about these different voices and animal welfare throughout the pandemic has had a lot of changes in how we handle our operations, our staffing changed because when we shut down, everybody got furloughed or they left. And so that's a lot of change of staff, a lot of questions around diversity, a lot of questions of providing services into communities, not within communities. A lot of 50-something white women coming in, doing stuff, but not, not into the community, but not amongst the community, if that makes any sense. So we have a lot of conversations going on, a lot of compassion fatigue, a lot of moral distress. Uh, there's lateral violence because of the stress. So there's internal bullying going on, external bullying from social media. And so some of those stresses in the conversations you're talking about in your plays, totally raw, honest, emotional energy within the animal welfare space is happening right now. And it's going to take a long time to recover, feel comfortable to heal, to resolve. And maybe we won't even get there. I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, I think in all the places that there are reckonings over um, inequities or injustices, I think that those are, I think it's, it's, it's high time that we're, that we're going through them and that we figure out a way to call each other in, in that process. 
there's this uh, speaker who I love. Her name is Loretta J. Ross, and she talks about call-in culture. And that rather than moving from a place of trying to shame people, of trying to call them in um, and figure out how do we talk to each other so that we can educate and move forward without just sort of saying, well, you don't know this, you don't understand this. And it's, you know, it is delicate, tender work and it involves people sitting in the fire and a lot of, a lot of discomfort. And the thing is, is that there are people who have been sitting in that fire and in a lot of discomfort for so year, so many years while others of us were not. And so, you know, I, I am interested in all the ways that um, we all have to reckon with trying to, to make spaces that are, that are welcoming, that are, that are fair, that are kind. Uh, and that means looking at our own behavior and saying, where do I fit in? Um, you know, the theater community is going through that as well, because it is the, the economics of it are so unjust that it's often um, a, a hobby for um, wealthier white people. And, you know, people are saying enough, <laughs> change the way this is being done because it isn't being done in a way that is not just fair, but is best. You know, that, that idea of that someone else's oppression affects someone else is so true. And so, you know, as a, as a white woman, I'm not out there trying to save someone else. I'm actually just trying to make my life as, um, as just and as open and as fair as I am for other, other people. Cause I do think that we are linked, but I think that it's really easy to fall into, um, a savior mindset. Um, I, you know, I, with the, with the war in Ukraine right now, I had this idea with my book, not a cat, because the, the cover of it is bright yellow and the writing is blue. And I was like, oh, this is the Ukrainian flag. Wow. You know, and there's all these children who you see pictures of them having lost their pets or being reunited with them and they've lost everything. And I, you know, my thought was, how do I get this book to, um, to Ukrainian refugees? And can I translate it into Ukrainian and donate it to them and, and, and all of that? And, you know, the, my mind races about how would I do that? But the first question is, do those people want this book? Is this needed? And are there other things that would better serve? And so to just sort of step back and take a breath and realize, again, not coming from outside of a community, but finding who's within the community. And is, is this something that people would need and want? Yeah, very, very true, very accurate. And it's a challenge. I think it's very much of a challenge in lots of spaces for all of us. Uh, so Winter, if folks are interested in getting your book, how would they do that? Well, the book is called Not a Cat. And if you type into your search engine, Not a Cat and Winter Miller, I promise you that the book will come up. Uh, you can look on places like Bookshop or other independent bookstores that will, they'll match you with the bookstore that's nearest to your community. So you can buy local. Obviously you can get it on the big chains as well, but it's, I think you can get it anywhere. And we'll make sure we have a link in the the show notes uh, to your website for sure. And then people can find it from there. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I'd like to share just that the the point of not a cat is about letting your cat or your small child uh, be exactly as they are. So when people would come up and say to Gato, oh, he's just like a dog. My, my point was, no, this is just Gato. This is who he is. And 
I felt like that as um, growing up and just people trying to label me as a tomboy. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm winter. This is just, this is just who I am. And this is what I want to wear. And this is how I want to be in the world. And so I wrote a book that is for all of those people out there who just want to be who they are. And my hope is that parents in reading it realize, you know, I want to let my kid be who they are. And that that's, that's the greatest sign of love. So I hope that this book gets out in the world and that it's a comfort to kids who are trying to express who they are, but that people also realize, you know, we don't have to build bullies. We can teach people to love other people just as they are. And my hope is that this book contributes to a kinder world. Wonderful. Winter, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for being a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.